Hello, and welcome to The Cash Flush, a programmer's audio scrapbook. I am your host, Avdi Grimm, and here's what's in the cash this week. Let's talk about engineering. When I started my career, uh, my title was software engineer. And that was interesting because I had no engineering certification. And um, also, I basically had no software education. I I had a grand total of three programming classes under my belt um, and no degree. And... And the stuff that I was doing was very engineering-oriented. I was working on at a defense contractor, and I was working on radar systems. I spent a lot of time working on a um, an air traffic control system. And, it, you know, it was one of those places where you would expect everyone there to be called an engineer. Um, over time, I've heard various epithets apply, other than engineering applied to uh, the software crap. See, I just said craft. The software craft, yes. So craftsmanship, that's one of them. Software craftsperson. Um, Art, of course, comes up sometimes. Um, What is the practice of software? Well, I don't believe that it is is strictly an engineering discipline. Um, I... um, I actually agree with Jessica Kerr that it is none of the above. It is it is a thing that comes after. It is a new thing. And um, but but on the other hand, I also disagree with people who say that there is there is no engineering aspect to software development. Um, I think en- engineering is a part of what we do. And to me, the part of engin- of software practice that is engineering is the part that involves. Measuring and quantifying and um, and not guessing. It's the part where we are fairly certain about something because we have data around it. Um, early, very early in my career, when I was at that job where I was working on radar systems, one of the things that I did uh, was was I was I was working with assembly code. And we had systems that were hard real-time, which means that you have, you have a system that um, has certain very hard time constraints where, the whole, where multiple computers all communicating over the same bus are working at a certain tempo. You know, for instance, um, for a given period of milliseconds, or maybe for one millisecond, uh, one hardware component is known to be writing to a particular piece of memory and another hardware component on the same bus, uh, maybe even on the same board, needs to then read read from that piece of memory in a constrained period of time um, before the, the first component starts writing to that piece of memory again and this is all clocked down to the, the microsecond level and I did things like go through assembly code looking at the instructions and then referring to um, the 68,000 manual to find out exactly how many processor ticks each of those instructions would take. And from that I could know precisely and without any real variance 
how long a certain sequence of instructions would take. Because this is this is on systems that were much much simpler than than um, your typical modern desktop operating system. There was there was no um, there's no garbage collection going on, no multiple processes that might interrupt. Um, you knew that if the processor was at point A, then you know you could actually quantify that it you know an, uh, this number of processor cycles later it's going to be at point B, and so that was very quantified. And you know I think for a lot of modern enterprise and web development, the quantification is different. But still, if you're measuring, if you're measuring your capacity, if you're testing and measuring your capacity and then, and then adding capacity based on what you measured, or any other kind of, of building based on measurement, based on quant, you know, quantified learning, I think that's engineering. And that is a piece of the software practice. And it's one that you can learn. I read a tweet this morning from someone who had used Vim for years and had built up an elaborate Vim setup. And like, like most Vim or Emacs users do, and she had switched recently to using an IDE for PHP development and discovered that now she had all the features that she'd had in her elaborate Vim setup, but now she was no longer on the hook for maintaining them. Um, and this is very familiar to me. Uh, for me, it was Emacs, but for many years I used Emacs almost exclusively, and I would cobble together all these different plugins and extensions um, and put together like these elaborate systems of configuration and uh, did some pretty amazing stuff, but I also poured a lot of time into it, and especially wound up debugging it a lot, just debugging arguments between extensions and, you know, update one thing and something breaks. Um, and it got me thinking about the cycles of... of um, oh, I, didn't, I don't even know what the right words are, but these cycles between, like, small tools with a bunch of pieces put together and then big tools that kind of take some... Some, um, capture a set of best practices and, um, and kind of set them a bit more in stone like the IDEs do. I feel like there, this might be a cyclical thing. I remember when the IDEs were genuine, genuinely le legitimately terrible. Um, they really... They really... They set in stone a lot of stuff that you didn't necessarily want to set in stone and they they had a lot of inscrutable problems. Um, and, uh, and then there was this period of innovation where suddenly, you know, there were some new text editors and there was an explosion of pop of interest in building extensions for the old text editors like Vim and Emacs. Um, and I think this kind of took place around the time where a bunch of new languages were also becoming popular. And I think a text editor, a basic text editor with, that's extensible, um, has a big advantage for a new language ecosystem. Because first off, something that's customized to give you lots of like, you know, for instance, just text navigation and editing um, options, like advanced editing options without an assumption of a particular syntax, a particular language, um, 
is going to give you a lot more leverage uh, for some brand new programming language that nobody's really written tools for yet, you know, than an IDE is, because the IDE doesn't know anything about that that new language. Um, and it's very easy to start to slowly, in one of these extensible editors, to start to slowly cobble together a set of macros and commands for that for this new language until you find yourself eventually putting together a full-fledged extension for it. Um, but then eventually what happens is the languages, they settle down, you know, they become more mature and we start to build up whole ecosystems of, of you know, accepted best practice tools around them. Um, for Ruby, you had, you had Rails, but then you also had, you know, you had Rake, and you had Bundler, and you had Gems. There was a time when Gems weren't a thing. Um, and you had, you started to have tools for code formatting or for, for um, linting and um, all these sort of tools around, around Rails that weren't part of Rails, but were generally considered part of your, be your best practices or common practices at least, like RSpec for testing or like um, FactoryBot for setting up uh, test fixtures and stuff like that. You know, and as these ecosystems settle down, it starts to become more and more possible to build a cohesive tool around them. And now there are these IDEs. Um, JetBrains has been turning out a, a set of really quite nice IDEs that take a bunch of those features from the text editors and they put them together in a way that frankly just works in a way that isn't always true of the text editor world. And, um, and I wonder if this is a cycle that will just continue. Uh, I think we we might, I think earlier in my career, I saw it as like an, an inevitable progression from the, the big bloated IDEs to the, the nimble editors. And now I wonder if it's just something that will always kind of ebb and flow over time. So I just saw somebody singing the praises of the feature in some video conferencing applications that enables you to automatically blur out your background so that it just shows your face. And um, I think it's a useful feature to have. But they were saying that this is useful when you have, when you're working from home and you have kids in the background. If I'm in a work meeting and I have kids in the background, I want people to see that I have kids in the background. And it's not because I want to like rub my kids in your face and be like, see, I'm a parent. It's because I want to normalize the idea that, um, that some people balance their work with, with being a parent. And I also want to engage my team's um, innate human's ability to... Um, to think about others' needs and to accommodate others' needs. And the best way to do that is to make them aware of those needs. Um, you know, for instance, let's say I play the usual game of, you know, I'm, I'm a uh, programmer who's also a parent, but 
I do everything in my power to make that fact invisible to the rest of my team. Well, then, you know, somebody, every time somebody suggests that we have a meeting or something, or a deployment or something, um, at the time of day when I'm normally picking up my kids from school, I have to be the one to pipe up and say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't do that at that point. I'm going to be picking my kids up from school. Um, you know, and suddenly over time, it starts to feel like I'm the annoying one. I'm the one with, um, who's always got an objection. But if my whole team knows that, you know, is, is, if my whole team has a baseline awareness that I balance my work with parenting, just like they balance their work with other things, um, then they can start to do that thing where they think, you know, they say, oh, oh wait a second, um, that, would that conflict with you picking up your kids? And they can start to automatically, you know, reach out to accommodate those things. I don't think everybody has to bring their entire life to work, but I think it should be safe for us to bring enough of our lives to work that p other people can be, can, can actually make, I think, can make allowances for us and not force us to be the ones constantly saying, oh, I'm so sorry, but that, I can't do that. And I think this is part of being a graceful socio-technical system, is this ability for parts of the system to have sympathy for other parts, to understand the needs and even some of the um, priorities and goals of other parts of the system and make allowances preemptively instead of forcing other parts of the system to raise exceptions. And that is the cash flush for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe. Just look up The Cash Flush in your podcast app of choice. If you love the show, please leave a review. And if you'd like to support the production of The Cash Flush, you can support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash avdigrim. That's A-V-D-I-G-R-I-M-M. If you'd like to leave me a message that I can respond to in a future episode, you can also do that just install the Anchor app. You can find that at anchor.fm. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to flush.